Hello, I'm Hannah Critchlow, reporting from Washington, D.C., for this special Naked Neuroscience podcast in partnership with the International Neuroethics Society and the Wellcome Trust, where we'll be taking a journey into the future to explore how brain research could shape a future society. In the last two episodes, we welcomed in the era of the brain. We discussed the colossal cash injections, including the Human Brain Initiative and the Human Brain Project, that hopes that we can peer into the human brain as never before. And we started to discuss how, as a society, we should best use the data that comes out. Plus, we met the robots that may be caring for our increasingly elderly populations in the future. In this episode, we explore how the US Defence Agency, who are involved in creating the internet, are also involved in producing these new human brain imaging techniques, and we get their take on how they might be used. And when any new technology comes about, there will be somebody who's going to think of good things to do with it, and there are going to be other folks who think of bad things to do with it. And you can't let that limit you in terms of proceeding forward on the technology, because in the advance of the technology, you may in fact find the solutions to those bad uses. And we discuss if we really have free will, or can we simply state that our brains force us to act the way that we do? You can equate free will with self-control, and that self-control or self-regulation is where our conscious brain can can direct our unconscious impulses. Plus, the brain isn't fully developed until the mid-twenties, making teenagers more likely to take risks, have poor decision-making, and be more susceptible to peer pressure. We explore the ramifications of these findings in the courtroom. seems to actually be gaining a lot of traction in the U.S. It seems that judges and courts and policymakers find that to be an appealing reason to try to be less harsh, less less long-term in the way that we treat juveniles and to try to have more compassionate decision-making with respect to them, understanding that their brains are likely to get better over time, that they're ex- likely to exercise better judgment over time. All to come. One of the sessions at the International Neuroethics Society was centred on the future of neuroscience research and its ethical implications. I met with a panellist to discuss the issues raised. My name is Jeffrey Ling. I'm uh, at the Defence Research Projects Agency. I'm the director of the Biological Technologies Office. So the internet, clearly one of the major advances of the last century. The programme was initiated by a doctor, uh, J.C. Licklitter. And when Dr. Licklitter put together the internet, he realized the great potential that it had. But as he proceeded forward, I doubt very much that he actually thought about some of the negative consequences, such as that there'd be some malfeasance around using it for child pornography. But even if he had known that, it was not a good reason not to proceed forward with the technology. So even though we have now the dark web where there's lots of child pornography and also drugs being sold and people being trafficked and also people being murdered, for example, via the dark web. Even though there are lots of negatives associated with the internet, there's also lots of positives. And President Obama sees neuroscience as potentially a similar scenario. I agree. With everything good, there's always the bad. And when any new technology comes about, there will be somebody who's going to think of good things to do with it and there are going to be other folks who think of bad things to do with it. And you can't let that limit you in terms of proceeding forward on the technology because in the advance of the technology, you may in fact find the solutions to those bad uses. So, for example, in the dark uh, web, we find that the 
internet as we know it for most people, they're able to monitor that activity and have some level of control over it. So there has to be a parallel one developed for this other one. But then as technology will advance even further, we'll find ways, in fact, to manage that. So what I'm saying to you is that many times the, the solutions for some of these problems can be found within the technology advancement itself. Um, what kind of technology um, and what kind of neuroscience research are DARPA funding? So at DARPA, we're really looking at neurotechnologies, much as the president mandated in the Brain Initiative, which is Brain Research Advanced Through Innovative Neurotechnologies. We're focus is to build neurotechnologies such that these technologies will, in fact, be enabling to the neuroscientific community at large. So a particular technology in the hands of one neuroscientist may have one function, in the hands of another neuroscientist may have another. But that's, there lies the beauty of it. A hammer is a classic example of a very useful, broadly applied technology. A hammer in the hands of a sculptor will create art. In the hands of an orthopedic surgeon will repair a hip. And a hammer in the hands of a carpenter will build a house. We view the same thing for neurotechnologies. The, the ability to look at functional data, potentially at anatomical data at different scales, will in fact be transformative as well as informative to the neuroscientific community. And those where we're focused at. And currently, neuroscientists are using quite dated techniques in order to peer into the brain. And so that's why President Obama is really interested in, in investing in new technologies that will revolutionize the way that we can look at the human brain and see how we behave. And that is indeed true. If you think about it, the ability to then find these breakthroughs that will go after very disparate diseases, such as epilepsy, stroke, Parkinson's disease and other neurodegenerative disorders such as Alzheimer's, it's going to be the tools that enable the neuroscientists to work with the neuroclinicians to make these advances. But we are working with uh, very old technologies. MRI has been around clinically since the 80s. EEG has been around clinically since the uh, 1920s. And so if you think about that, I mean, they really have not kept pace with the other uh, technologies that these clinicians use, such as the computer, for example, an iPad, an iPhone, this sort of thing. So, in fact, we really are at a point where we desperately need these new technologies. And you mentioned today uh, about the case of a, a pilot who unfortunately had lost the use of some of her limbs, and she was able to control a plane by thought alone. There was a question that was raised from this by one of the audience members, which was, Will humanity somehow lose itself as we become in more of a relationship with machine and with robots? So I want to make, make it clear that that uh, woman was not a pilot. That was the amazing thing, is that she was just a regular person who had become quadriplegic due to a disease process. And in fact, when we were able to do this interface, she was able to show that she was able to fly or control, well, I should say, a simulated aircraft as well as a, a seasoned pilot, which is really quite extraordinary. It tells you the opportunity space for these, some of these neurotechnologies. As far as losing one's self-identity in these interfaces, we're not there yet, and we may be a long, long ways away from that. Because what these technologies do is they measure simple signals and they translate them into motor activity. That's a far cry from being integrated within the machine or a substance that actually has a, a self-awareness and a self-consciousness. And before machines actually get to that point, it's going to take quite a bit of advances to do that. Will it happen one day? It may. I don't know, though. I mean, that one I'm, I, is worthy of a very in-depth discussion on what is the definition of self-consciousness, self-awareness. And so I think we're far away from that. And George, you mentioned consciousness and, and the issue, the big issue of free will at today's meeting. George Kube, and I'm director of the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. 
Well, basically, I raise the argument of, of free will versus my brain made me do it. And you can take that argument from philosophers who would argue that there is no such thing as free will because basically they argue that these false assumptions about that we could behave differently than we did and that most of our conscious activity is in the present things that we select. And so we've learned a lot about how the brain makes selections, and we know that habits can be formed in some basic parts of our brain. We know our stress responses and some basic parts of our brain that even, that even reptiles have. But in the end, I kind of fall in the zone of Patricia Churchland, who, who argues that you can equate free will with self-control, and that self-control or self-regulation is where our conscious brain can, can direct our unconscious impulses key part of that is the frontal cortex, and a key part of that frontal cortex is the ventral part of the frontal cortex. And then you get into a neuroethical question as to what happens when you have damage to that part of the ventral prefrontal cortex, whether it's through developmental issues or whether it's through excessive alcohol use as an adult. And I think that's a question that remains um, out there to be solved in neuroethics, is that uh, when is it really true that your brain made you do it? So as we're finding out more and more uh, through neuroscience on how the brain of an alcoholic, for example, may look, you might say that they have brain damage and that is causing them to impulsively and compulsively go towards alcohol. Exactly right. You can make that argument, but you can also make the converse argument that that brain has the capability to recover that dysfunction. And we know that to be the case in alcoholism because individuals do recover and they use a much more diffuse pathways in their brain in that recovery process. So I think it's kind of a cup half empty, cup half full position. While you're engaged in excessive drug-taking behavior, you may have a dysfunctional brain, but the brain, when it goes abstinent, has the capability to recover normal function. That would be the way I'd look at it. And talking about treatments, Tom, you made the point that um, although we're actually at a, a precursor meeting to one of the largest neuroscience conferences in the world, where over 40,000 neuroscientists are converging this weekend in Washington, um, you made the argument that although neuroscience is, is finding out lots of things about basic brain function um, and that there are more and more neuroscientists being employed, we haven't actually made a huge leap or huge translation for patients in the clinic or homeless people on the streets, for example. I'm Tom Insull. I'm the director of the National Institute of Mental Health. Well, that's the case. So the public health data speak for themselves. When you look at uh, measures of morbidity and mortality, what's striking is um, the lack of change. That We have seen remarkable improvements in uh, life expectancy, and we've seen reductions, really profound reductions, in some areas for mortality, uh, whether it's in heart disease or acute lymphoblastic leukemia or uh, certain forms of stroke. We've done really very well. But when you look at suicide, it's striking that over 20 years, uh, there's really not even a hint of a reduction in the numbers. And the numbers are very unsettling. 39,000 suicides this year in the United States expected, at least based on the historical trends. And that's double the number of homicides. So we're talking about very large numbers. There was a time in this country when homicides outnumbered suicides. Those are down about 50%. Suicide hasn't budged. Suicide 90% of the time is related to uh, a mental illness or some form of brain disorder. Uh, That's inexcusable that we haven't been able to deliver to begin to save lives when they are uh, 
when the actual numbers demonstrate just how prevalent this is. And so bearing in mind that we're about to have a big celebration of neuroscience at the conference, how on earth do we try and translate some of these findings to help patients that have mental health issues? Well, there's sort of two sides to it. I think you do need uh, the deep dive on the brain, and you need to understand much, much more than we understand today about how the brain works. The imaging is spectacular that we're seeing, but uh, to be fair, what we can do in mice for imaging as well as for diagnostics and therapeutics is way, way beyond where we are for humans. And that's really the, the challenge for us as a neuroscience community. How do we get to the point where we can take the kind of molecular cellular systems understanding that we have and some of the tools that seem to be working so well for simple organisms and take them to be able to study the human brain, developing a human neuroscience, and then to use that to actually make a difference for people with brain disorders. And one of the audience members today, we were discussing some of the ethics raised by how, how this research might be used, so research that's coming out of peering into the human brain. This audience member made the point that as a neuroscience community, maybe we have to see ourselves as part ethicist and start to tackle these, these issues individually as neuroscientists. Do you agree with that? Or do you think it's the job of the policymakers um, and the ethicists? George? Well, when you submit a grant application, you are, more importantly, a training application in the United States. You are required to take a course in ethics that's administered by your institution. It wouldn't be too much of a stretch that that was also included some neuroethics for people who are involved in training for the neurosciences. So, for example, postdocs at the Scripps Research Institute have to take this course, and it, it's required of all postdoctoral fellows, and it has to be put on the application, or the study sections that are reviewing the application will find fault with the application. So that's a one parochial take on it, but this could be expanded in such a way, and maybe will be, based on our discussions today. And Tom? I'm not sure that I really understand that proposal. I don't know what it would mean to expect all neuroscientists to begin to incorporate neuroethics or ethics. I think I'd have to understand what the neuroscience area was about, and I'd have to understand what that practically means. I have to say that today there are so many requirements for someone who wants to do science. I'm a little bit cautious about increasing the demands or the uh, requirements that uh, will create a speed bump. I'm okay on the guardrails, and I'm okay on the idea that we could use those flashing yellow lights at times, but we know so little, and the needs are so urgent. I want to make sure that we're not getting in the way of progress by asking too much of people. And Jeff? I have nothing more to add to that. And so, very final question. What do you think might be the dark sides that may emerge from the Brain Initiative and the Human Brain Project, for example? Can you foresee, can you look into the future and and say that there might be some dark internet-type analogies that might come out of the data? Starting with you, Tom. One of the biggest concerns I have about the Brain Initiative is that um, it won't be able to accomplish the dream, either positive or negative, of what could be done here. There is no question that the challenge is great and the need is even greater. But whether there will be funding, whether there will be um, the right amount of fundamental knowledge, and whether we'll get lucky with the technology to do what we want to do is a huge, huge question for me still. So 
I have to confess that, uh, yes, there are days when I think about what could be the negative consequences of great progress in this area. But at this stage in the process, most of all, what I'm worried about is that we won't make the progress we need to have a positive impact. George? I would think that my dark side would be the issue about neuroethics. When we get to the point where you can tell that someone has a small dysfunction in, say, the connection between the insula and the amygdala, does that really mean that they have a mental disorder or that they have uh, uh, an impulse control disorder, let's say? And then do we pay for treatment of that even though there's no manifestation? And there's going to be a huge ethical concern about the cost of doing super sophisticated diagnosis and who's going to pay for it and is it really necessary and who's going to have access to it. So all of the questions that we always have about healthcare are going to be expanded and it's the way I would argue. Particularly relevant for America where you don't have the National Health Service. Um, yeah, and lastly, Jeff. Well, I would say that the thing that I worry most about on the dark side is in fact what I would say is an exaggerated concern. Because a lot of these things in the near term, certainly just about all the things in the near term, are really meant to improve the human condition. And one of the problems that you have in any of these things that you, as you try to improve the human condition is that you do worry very much about the, the downsides, the, the negative or untoward consequences, as it were. So to put it in a very blunt way, I believe that there's things called the, the, the one-third rule. And the one-third rule is one-third of the work and the effort goes into the basic research. One-third is just getting through regulation. And one-third is getting through the commercial hurdles before you actually see any of these things making it out into the, um, into the patient and into the bedside. So when you think about that, that means only one-third of it is actually the research. The other two-thirds are actually hurdles to get through to getting into the bedside. And that, to me, is really the, the darkest side right now as, as far as I can see it. Thanks to Jeff Lang from the U.S. Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, George Cobe from the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, and Tom Insel from the National Institute of Mental Health. Next, we examine neuroscience being used in the courtroom. We put the brain on trial by looking at international case studies with a panel of experts. Nita Farahani from Duke University. So when we're talking about neuroscience in the courtroom in this context, we're talking about a criminal defendant making use of it to say, my brain made me do it. Um, the controversy in the criminal courtroom for adults is that the kind of neuroscientific evidence that's being used is a population-level data, meaning the science tells us only about differences across a population, not about why any particular person behaved the way that they did. And so when an adult criminal comes into the courtroom and says, my brain made me do it, and here's the brain scan that proves that that's true – it's problematic because the science doesn't support that kind of individualised assessment. So, for example, that would be a psychiatrist's holy grail, wouldn't it, if someone could have um, a brain scan and then the psychiatrist would be able to say, oh, yes, you have schizophrenia or you have um, psychopathy, um, and then they can start treating immediately based on that brain scan results. The science just isn't there yet. Um, you're, you're finding something very different, though, in terms of the use of neuroscience in the youth criminal justice system in America? Yes. Yeah, so with juveniles who come into the courtroom, 
the kind of argument that they're making isn't so much about what their individual brain is that's different from the population. It's actually their brain is just like every other juvenile, but that every other juvenile as a category is different in kind than an adult. And that's because the juvenile brain is still developing, the frontal lobe region of the brain, which is essential for executive decision-making, for planning and premeditation, um, the kinds of myelination of neurons, which are critical to kind of decreasing the noise in the brain and enabling us to make good judgments and good decisions, those are still all in development in juveniles. And so when they come in, they're not saying my brain, my abnormal brain made me do it. Instead, it's my juvenile brain made me do it. And you should treat juveniles as a class or as a category differently than you treat adults. And that kind of claim seems to actually be gaining a lot of traction in the U.S. It seems that judges and courts and policymakers find that to be an appealing reason to try to be less harsh, less less long-term in the way that we treat juveniles, and to try to have more compassionate decision-making with respect to them, understanding that their brains are likely to get better over time, that they're ex- likely to exercise better judgment over time. So it's not the case that um, young people who may commit crimes in their teens would then be incarcerated for 100 years, say, um, with no chance of appeal. They would be able to say, well, my brain was in a certain state as they were a teenager, which would fit with the neuroscientific data as we understand it now. And then rehabilitation um, processes might be um, able to be incurred. You found some really interesting results in Canada in terms of... Um, the way that the justice system looks at different individuals very differently based on um, the risk and the, the neuroscience data. Can you tell us a little bit, bit about the cases there? Certainly, yes. Hello, I'm Jennifer Chandler. I'm an associate professor at the Faculty of Law, University of Ottawa, Canada. I was comparing two cases involving 14-year-old offenders in Canada, both of whom were able to claim that they had immature brains and so that should be taken into consideration. And indeed, the Canadian law explicitly does that. Um, in the statute. But in addition, they had another cause of disability, which was brain damage due to prenatal alcohol exposure. And so what we saw was perhaps a willingness to take into consideration that their brain was immature and they might get better, but that was constrained by the sense that they had permanent serious brain damage due to fetal alcohol exposure and they would not get better. So it produced very different results in these two offenders, one of whose brain damage was more severe than the other. And while we might have said, well, he had more diminishment of his capacity and so was less morally blameworthy, he ended up with a much longer sentence because of concern that he would be very difficult to rehabilitate. Um, Isn't there the case that that really anyone who commits a crime might have some kind of brain damage or some altered brain function which allows them to act in a way that isn't in keeping with um, our society and our legal system? So in that case, couldn't you say that any criminal has diminished responsibility? Hi, I'm Lisa Clayden. I'm a senior lecturer in law at the Open University. You aren't in a criminal case going to look at that as an issue unless the defendant wants to raise it. And clearly, most of the time, it wouldn't be to his advantage to raise it because we've already heard that actually saying I could potentially be less in control of myself might not be a good legal argument for a defendant to make. So I think the simple answer is that a defendant really has to have a reason to bring forward information that relates to his brain state at the time of the crime. And usually that reason will be that he hopes to make a plea which will 
diminish the charge or, or mitigate sentence. There's the case that in the UK at least, um, 80, over 80% of youths that are convicted in the criminal system um, will go on to re-offend, which indicates that the current rehabilitation system isn't successful. If, for example, there was a school or a hospital that was failing at over an 80% rate, then it would probably be, be shut down. So is there any way that we can use neuroscience understanding to help improve the rehabilitation um, system for those people that are convicted? Yeah, there is uh, quite some interesting research in um, the way you, neuroscience could be used to improve behavioral interventions. For instance, uh, to predict for whom they work and for whom not. And behavioral in interventions uh, play a large role in the prison system, for instance, in the Netherlands. A lot of them have been bought in the 90s, for instance, aggression um, regulation therapy, and they work for about 10 to 50% of the offenders. And what does aggression regulation therapy entail? It's a cognitive behavioural intervention, so it teaches you different attitudes towards aggression, and it's, it aims at teaching you to control yourself better, for instance. And that's all with the ultimate aim of reducing criminal recidivism, of course. And in the States, I believe um, there's also some evidence that you can have a look at those children that have been exposed to quite violent, traumatic events in their early life, and then also pair that up with genetic data to then predict whether they might be likely to um, kind of repeat that circle of violence themselves in their own life, go and go and commit uh, vicious crimes. So the same problem that we have with the adult system is the problem we have with any particular juvenile again. So even if you were able to tell through genetic testing and environmental impulses or environmental influences that an individual um, fits within a category that is more likely to be violent, that doesn't tell us that a particular youth is more likely to be violent, only that people generally with those types of um, early exposure are more likely to be violent. And so what I wouldn't want the evidence to be used for is to do brain scanning or genetic scanning of children and then label or stigmatize a child and say this person is much more likely than somebody who doesn't have this um, environmental influence or genetic influence or neurological influence to be a violent offender as an adult. What I would hope is that by looking at this um, information across the population, we have very good reason to intervene early across the board to decrease childhood violence, to try to make available treatments that address the kinds of predispositions that we're seeing at group levels. So that they hopefully wouldn't then go on to commit a crime themselves. They would actually be rehabilitated or have some preventative treatment before they commit a crime. That's right. Um, and I again, it would be preventive treatment, right, which is ways to prevent people from ending up in the prison system and the criminal system, ending up as offenders. So it's trying to have early childhood intervention that increases the chances that all of our youth will have the best possibility of not ending up on a life and a path of crime. And Paul, your findings of case studies in the UK. Hi, I'm Paul Cathley. I'm a senior lecturer in law at The Open University. We've been looking at uh, a range of cases, and what we found is that there's increasing numbers of cases that are being used both to argue that someone should not have been convicted or alternatively that the, the sentence is, is unjust and excessive. And one case which we, we found particularly interesting because of the extent of the neuroscientific evidence that was being brought in was a case where 
a 15-year-old was assaulted, and there was, there was no dispute there that, that he'd been assaulted. But the question was about the seriousness of the injuries that he sustained, and the family were claiming that he'd suffered serious brain injury. Quite a number of years later, he and a lot of members of his family were charged with conspiracy to defraud. At that trial, one of the big issues was, was he malingering? Was he just pretending to be uh, unable to follow things? Or was some real genuine medical problem? He was convicted, but when he appealed some time later, at that point there were later MRI scans which were able to support the argument that actually, yes, there was a degenerative brain disorder there which had probably been there at the time of trial and so supported his argument that he hadn't been fit to stand trial initially and led to his conviction being quashed. So that neuroscience data came 11 years after the initial case was brought to court, and he'd already been sentenced and served three years in prison at that point. Yes, so, so in that sense, you know, it's a fairly unsatisfactory outcome. I guess, you know, from his viewpoint and his family's viewpoint, he is cleared, his conviction is quashed, he, he doesn't have the criminal record. But, as you say, you know, it came very late. Uh, and this was an individual for whom prison was probably an awful experience. Someone with a severe brain disorder from an ethnic minority coping in a, a prison situation when he, he'd also got failing eyesight. So it must have been a very difficult three years for him. And findings from Singapore. Hello, my name is Calvin Ho. I'm from the Centre for Biomedical Ethics at the Yong Lulin School of Medicine, National University of Singapore. Uh, yeah, I, I think neuroscience evidence has been very helpful in uh, the way that courts have come to understand their own role. So, for instance, in relation to a diagnosis of kleptomania, courts are prepared to recognise that uh, perhaps the accused deserving less of a blame given the, the particular condition. Uh, however, I think the court has also emphasised that the, the court may be somewhat lenient in, in terms of whether you ought to be blamed for shoplifting. It's quite a different situation in keeping to a particular plan. So the court saw its role as ensuring that some of these young people who have been diagnosed with kleptomania keep to particular treatment plan rather than to punish them for a particular condition that I think it is prepared to recognise that these young people have no control over. And then last point really, um, do you think that neuroscientists need to be trained at communicating their work to lawyers so that they can actually provide evidence in a court setting? Yes, I think that would be a very good thing to, um, to make clear what, uh, which tests are ready for use and which aren't. That would be very important, I think. I would agree. I don't know whether Nita would agree with that. Absolutely. Um, one of the problems right now is the mismatch between neuroscientific, neuroscientific understandings and legal understandings of some basic concepts, like what does it mean to engage in a voluntary action, what is a mental state, and the miscommunication that occurs between the two right now 
um, is causing a lot of problems on both sides in terms of understanding and appropriate use of neuroscience in the legal setting. So I think neuroscientists need to be better trained to communicate with public policymakers and legal decision makers, and legal decision makers need to be better trained to understand and appropriately incorporate neuroscience and to not incorporate neuroscience where it's inappropriate to do so. Yeah, I I think that's really important because it's interesting that courts in Singapore and Malaysia have asked counsel to introduce neurological evidence. So I think there is receptivity there. Uh, courts also recognise that neuroscience is a, a very important decision-making tool because uh, they, they seem to attribute a certain level of objectivity. Thanks to Anita Farahani, Lisa Clayden, Jennifer Chandler, Paul Catley, Katie DeCogel and Calvin Ho. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for in this special series of Naked Neuroscience. I'm Hannah Critchlow and I've been reporting from the International Neuroethics 2014 meeting hosted at the AAAS, so the American Association for the Advancement of Science, at Washington, D.C. Thanks to all those who took part in the programme and to the Wellcome Trust for their generous support. In the next episode, I'll be reporting from Calcutta, where... I'll be meeting the President of India, who is opening a brand new neuroscience hospital and research facility there. So hopefully see you next month to open our minds.